So with me on the podcast today is Ryan Rumsey. You are CEO of Second Wave Dive and co-founder, is that correct? Just founder and founder CEO. I'm, and I'm still a team of one. <laughs> team of one. <laughs> Do you want to give a little intro of what Second Wave Dive is? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So Second Wave Dive is a little bit of an experiment after many years of designing and building design organizations and, and practices at places like Apple and USAA and Electronic Arts, I found that I was kind of needing a little bit of a, a reprieve from that. And so what I'm doing at Second Wave Dive is kind of an experiment in approaching consulting and training or, or professional development in a new way. And so what I'm doing is really helping organizations mature their approach to decision-making. When it comes to consulting, I really call it unconsulting. So <laughs> sort of not, not taking on the, the approach that a lot of, say, the big consulting firms do, which is uh, to sort of bring in a lot of analytical prowess, but maybe the model is to keep selling their wares. Um <laughs> I'm typically brought in as a consultant to really help executive teams who are suffering from decision fatigue, really on kind of the things that they they don't know that they don't know. And so I help them frame uh, uh, recommendations for strategic questions they have, like, should we hire a chief design officer? Are there design outcomes that we can uh, uh, sort of align to business outcomes and measures? So that's been fun. But I think the majority of my focus has been really in professional development. And that is to say that I think there's an adage out there that is, hey, designers, you should learn business. <laughs> but in my career, the majority of quote unquote business problems to solve are not actually business problems. They're relationship problems. They're communication problems. And so what I'm focused on is building specific boutique programs that get into the deep practice of really developing a business sense, then uh, using frameworks to sort of determine, do I have a relationship problem that I need to uh, work on? Do I need uh, to communicate my rationale and thought in a different way? Or what types of metrics are going to be the right types of metrics here in this organization rather than, say, uh, appropriate for all organizations? And a lot of my initial training stuff has, has kind of been in this air quotes business world, but, but I really think it's um, systems problems to solve. And so I'm taking this sort of systems approach of, of how we might address a lot of the things, the systemic things that designers and design leaders have to deal with day to day that won't be solved by an MBA. <laughs> <laughs> I'm intrigued by a couple things. I know you started Second Wave Dive a few months before COVID hit pretty hard. And I wonder how much you, you talked about decision fatigue and, and supporting designers and businesses through that. I wonder how much the last nine months of us being quarantined, being very like hypervigilant, uh, has has factored into that decision fatigue. Right. 
Well, one thing I would say is in hindsight, maybe not the best idea to launch a <laughs> professional uh, development, you know, organization. Um, it was about nine months before COVID hit. Um, so I, I think I launched uh, like July of 2019. I think what's been interesting is it has both accelerated some of the hard decisions that organizations have had to make, mm-hmm. but also at the same time where we as humans just have maybe bigger priorities going on right now. <laughs> you know, <laughs> what does it mean to, as an individual, survive in this moment? Sort of try as best we can to maintain some type of mental health and doing the business stuff that we need to do, but but maybe it's more just like treading water mode rather than like unicorn business mode. And it's been interesting. I wrote a book as well, and I put a lot of, <laughs> uh, this is very uh, kind of me, rather than try to go out and do lead gen and, and learn how to do all that. I was like, well, I'll write a book for free and I'll use that as my lead gen so that I, I don't have to really kind of get all salesy. But the book was scheduled to be released on March 15th, <laughs> kind of three days after North America was shut down. I wrote it with Envision and, and they made a, a great call to kind of hold off. But the, the book was then released April 15th, which it was nice to get the book out, but had no impact on my lead gen right? because- who wants to really develop their career when the world is on fire? Yeah. So it's been interesting to watch how people have initially gone through the sort of Tuckman scale of storming, norming, forming, all these types of things at a sort of a larger societal perspective. <laughs> and to see businesses initially react to either they were already prepared to be all virtual in a digital way, or they just took that big, huge digital transformation project and it went from like a four-year plan to like a three-month plan. <laughs> and I think what's been interesting is to now see a lot of design professionals kind of reevaluating where they want to go and what values they have as individuals and kind of are those in alignment with the organizational values or the the company values for the the places that they're working in? And so there's just like a a different decision-making process that's going on that I've seen and been witness to and and have a lot of my students kind of sharing. And that's, that's been fascinating to sort of see and observe throughout this whole nine months that we've been in this. Yeah, I've I've heard a lot. You said treading water. I've heard a lot of like 2020 is the year for maintenance mode. Mm. I can certainly get into it that with all of the external factors, but there has been for me specifically, I think a double down on understanding business because there's so much now tied up in that. Right. Like there's a lot more risk, and so. For me to understand what those risks are is, is really important, not just for ThoughtBot, but also for the clients that we're designing for. Mm-hmm. And, and I know you talked a lot about a lot of the things that I learned sort of 
as a consultant working on, you know, design web and mobile applications over the period of time, I really wish that I had that book that you released in the middle of or the beginning of, of what turned out to be a very long pandemic very early on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) There's no question there, but like, have you seen other people? It sounds like what what you're talking about is is some people are starting to get out of this maintenance mode, out of this treading water and start to look ahead. And does that look ahead, I guess, for some of your students or for even you yourself as you're building your own business? How are you getting out of maintenance mode or how are they getting out of maintenance mode? It's a good question. Uh, maybe I'll I'll start with them first because because it is is about them. I think the underlying thing behind me writing the book, and I think why a lot of students, if we call them students, are, are coming to me, is because in their career, I think the overwhelming thing is like they feel like they've had a lot of the components and they don't know how to arrange them. It's sort of like I have all the musical notes, but I can't play a song. And as they're kind of reevaluating and seeing that really, when it comes down to working for a company, everything is viability if you work for a for-profit company. What do I mean by that is is a for-profit company, yes, should be customer-driven and should be informed by customers. But the point of having a for-profit company is to remain soluble. (laughs) It's to remain in business. And I think what we saw in this pandemic is companies making very deliberate choices to remain in business that suddenly the foggy mirror is lifted, right? Suddenly it's like very clear where companies and organizations kind of what they value and prioritize. And I think that that sort of fog being lifted from designers is to say like, oh, wait, we've had a very good run the last 10 years. Designers, we've kind of been in this bull market where design, design, design is being promoted, But we've all been kind of, you know, watercolor painting inside lines that have been given to us, thinking that we could suddenly, you know, create new lines. What's the color by numbers, right? (laughs) That, you know, and so we've been talking about we need a seat at the table and all these types of things. and, And there's many more of us in the industry, but suddenly seeing that in large part, we're, we're still given the color by numbers. We're still given the framework upon which to paint. And I think by understanding some of the basics of how business is done and how business leaders use their own frameworks to make decisions, it suddenly goes, oh my gosh, every employee at a company is really in service to the business model, uh, to that color by number <laughs> you know, setup. Suddenly they may realize, wow, that is maybe not the model that that I wanted to to paint in. So it's been interesting. Quite a few of my students have been awoken to perhaps needing a new job, needing a new place, needing some type of new thing. And that's, I think, as a result of sort of seeing the business model in a different way. I had a, a wonderful student who, it was about three weeks into uh, the course, this one course that I lead right now called Strategic Business Thinking for Designers. It's a fancy name, but <laughs> she about three weeks in went, 
oh my gosh, I'm in a blitzscaling model. And you could just see her eyes open up and saying, suddenly sort of saying like, that's, that's not really what it drives me as a person. That's not what drives me as a designer. That's probably not the model that's going to be healthiest for me. And that's not to say that there's anything wrong with blitzscaling, but the awareness to then say that is not a model that fits where I want to be is quite something to see from a designer. You're talking about, for my opinion, two very distinct things, which is sort of personal values and expectations and fulfillment. And Mm. potentially, hopefully, what's driving the business model is business values and how those match up. Mm -hmm. Do Do you work with your students on filling out what their personal values are and writing those. I, I feel like I, I didn't do that until like <laughs> a few years ago. Uh, and it f- felt very empowering and personal, but also very important um, to see yeah. how they aligned with ThoughtBot's company values right. and purpose and also how, how ThoughtBot's makes its money. So I don't do it directly. <laughs> I've written about this before. Uh, I've actually given talks of like, you know, how I created my own personal opportunity workshop. And I got nerdy and like, I have my own rubric and rating system. But what I instead teach is our colleagues are humans. We talk so much about how, you know, we, we need to empathize with our customers and whatnot. Your, your colleagues uh, are humans too. And when you genuinely get to to know and care about them and what they have to get done and what's painful for them, you suddenly see you know your partnerships and working relationships in a very different way. It's less finger pointy, like, "Hey, you over there, product manager, if you if you only thought like this, we'd be fine." Uh, which is not the point. It, it's the point is to say like they have their different jobs to be done. They have their own pains, and it's then knowing that in order to serve the customer in the best way, it's finding a way for multiple ways of problem solving to come together and find a path forward, some type of common agenda, you know, collective impact, if you will. So I don't teach that directly. What I do, though, is let's talk about value as a discipline or a functional unit. So one of the prompt questions that I say, uh, I, I use this in an activity a lot, and maybe we could practice this with you, is if I were to go to every designer at ThoughtBot and ask them, what is great design, will I get the same answer? Uh, my guess is the answer would be no, you wouldn't get the same answer. Okay. So that's good. Good to know. That's usually the same, the common answer. And then I flip it around and say, so might your business partners be confused if they were to go to three different designers at ThoughtBot and ask what they think is a very simple question and get different answers? Might they be confused about what the functional unit of design, the value you bring to ThoughtBot, be confusing for them if it's then these different answers. Because I think a lot of designers are talking about what is design sort of as a practice, as a method, as a medium, right? As a discipline, if you will, like in the broader industry perspective, that's how they answer the question. But 
the job that designers have been hired to do at a organization is is design bringing some type of differentiated competitive advantage to that organization. And therefore, it should be then pretty clear and straightforward. It's sort of like that question, what is great design? That should be a Twitter debate, right? <laughs> we should, which it has Nothing been. Nothing should be a Twitter debate. <laughs> right. Uh, but, it, but it's sort of like that's how Twitter was almost invented, was for designers to argue, <laughs> right? Or product managers to argue, right? But when a company hires like a functional unit, that should be pretty clear. Uh, as to what the what design means for the company, that's one of those little pivots that I, I I walk through as part of the course. I think one of the big things that I focus on is it's a systems problem, right? It's not a business problem to solve; it's a systems problem to solve because you might be able to show some metrics, but if your colleague is somebody who's driven more by let's say relationships those metrics might not be the answer. Or if you bring some type of uh, a relationship aspect to it, your colleague may be more analytical in their problem-solving process. So, you know, having coffee with them might not work either. So what, what my attempt to do is to say systems problems are uh, difficult to teach, and they're rarely providing like applicable on Monday skills. So that's that kind of gap that I'm I'm trying to bridge is like soft skills aren't so far away. We're we're pretty close to them. How can we just sort of remix a lot of the tools and then frame them in a way that you could bring back on Monday and say like, oh, I now have a new way to communicate. It, it sounds like your courses are 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 covering quite a bit. Uh they do. Uh <laughs> there was a period that I called them an intensive. An intensive. So my courses are a minimum of six weeks, six to eight hours a week. The reason being is really from an instructional side. You know, I loved going to workshops and conferences and whatnot, and I was inspired, but I never brought anything back to work on Monday that I could apply. Why? Because maybe somebody gave me a like a quick overview, but I really didn't get that deliberate practice followed by some sort of like critique and feedback. And so I was always too kind of afraid to try something new. Like I, I didn't want to go right in front of like the CTO with this brand new framework that I just learned at a four hour workshop, you know, like that sounded really risky as an individual to me. And so what my courses do with this, they cover a lot of material, but it's it's really like just enough in six different areas so that by the time you're done with that six weeks, you have like a pretty comprehensive playbook on how to make business sense when it comes to communicating, when it comes to mapping value, preparing for negotiations. Because those are all the things that we, we sort of deal with day to day when trying to influence, when trying to show our impact, right? There are tons of VPN providers out there. You've probably heard of a couple of them. And some of you may even used a VPN before. But I like to do research on my sponsors, and I only recommend brands to my listeners that I believe in. 
I can say with full confidence that ExpressVPN is the best VPN on the market. Here's why. ExpressVPN doesn't log your data. Lots of really cheap or free VPNs make money by selling your data to ad companies. ExpressVPN developed a technology called Trusted Server that makes it impossible for their servers to log any of your info. Second is speed. I've tried lots of VPNs in the past. Many slow your connection down or make your device sluggish. I've been using ExpressVPN and my internet speeds are blazing fast. Even when I connect to servers thousands of miles away, I can still stream HD quality videos with zero lag, which is really important for those MLB baseball games when I want to be out of market. The last thing that really sets ExpressVPN apart from other VPNs is how easy it is to use. Unlike other VPNs, you don't have to input or program anything. Just fire up the app and click one button to connect. It's so easy anyone can use it. And it's not just me saying this. Wired, The Verge, CNET, and many other tech experts rate ExpressVPN the number one VPN in the world. So protect yourself with the VPN that I use and trust. Use my link, expressvpn.com slash tentative, and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash tentative to learn more. We've uh, recently been doing a consulting course for some of the newer ThoughtBotters and even people who have been here for a while to get a sense of the many situations that we find ourselves in. And the best way that we figured out how to like build those soft muscles, <laughs> soft skill muscles, is through role-playing and, and just mm. acting out you know, some of the hardest consulting situations that we've been in, I I guess, how do you help build those soft skill muscles? Uh, So if you know, like the design loop, right, where, uh, you know, we see these loops common, right, where it's sort of like understand, reflect, and then make or build. Mm -hmm. So I replace the last part. And I say, instead of make or build, I call it what's remixing. So role playing is an aspect there. But it's really like Weird Al Yankovicking. How can you sample a couple things and just spin it in a new way? So each week, what I do is provide a little bit of a, a history lesson into a space, sort of share, hey, you, you didn't know about these things because nobody told us that we needed to know about these things. But then I remix it and I sort of say, like, you actually have the tools, right? You actually know how to do this. And so the role playing that we do is more around like create a presentation that you're going to have to provide to an executive team. There is likelihood that you will provide that in person, but there is also very much a likelihood that you'll have to email that out. And the difference in that is that Presenting in person is a very different experience than reading as an experience. And so what we do with our little assignments is basically frame it and say, in this assignment, your peers are the readers and they don't trust you. <laughs> and so we, we you know, sort of preface like, here are these conditions or these situations that you might have to deal with. And then we show them how the framework can be slightly altered in order to adjust to whether there is trust, whether you have to email it out to 50 people or whether you're doing it one-on-one in person. Mm -hmm. 
that sounds like uh, it would be a lot of fun to to play through. I know we really enjoy the the role playing uh, and the consulting course. I'd be curious to hear just from your perspective with the role playing. What are you seeing as the benefits, and then what are still some gaps or challenges that you're trying to overcome? The benefits are being able to have an understanding. So we we take on a lot of different projects at Thoughtbot. Mm-hmm. I bucketed them into like four different buckets, and so for each one of those project types, you see different consulting situations come up, and there's nuances. But I think one of the things that you you talked about earlier today is is a lot of it comes down to setting expectations, being aligned on what goals and you know outcomes are for the project. Mm-hmm. And then communication and communication is just for whatever reason, uh, especially now remotely is it's really, really hard to do and, and hard to get right. But when it, when you get it right, it's like amazing. So it allows people to have a, a safer space to practice what would normally be very heated conversations. Right. Of course, they're not nearly as like, I'm probably the meanest of the thought potters because I've had so many experiences where I've dealt with a heated client, you know, their expectations are, were misaligned for whatever reason, or we weren't communicating well. So it's, it's definitely a little sandbox to play in for us to, to get a little more experience so that when, when there is a heated situation, when there is a client that's really upset, we could be a little more level-headed and instead mm. of like being like, whoa, being like, okay, I've, I've seen a version of this before and be a little more present instead of reactionary and defensive. Right. Yeah, I love that. It's pattern recognition, right? right? And that's a lot of the same things that we're doing in, in our courses is rather than getting into like, you know, w- one of the things that's difficult for us is to do like live role play. I tried it a little bit, but... You know, if I have 36 people in a cohort, <laughs> that can get difficult. And yep. especially if if we have people in, you know, 12 different time zones and everybody's got a full-time job. And so we, we kind of do our best, but how we inject sort of role play in is, I'll give you an example. So the first week, uh, what I go through is uh, I start out immediately with a very pragmatic tool, which is you know, analytical storytelling, which is like the pyramid principles type stuff, but make it very pragmatic. So it is consultant thinking, right? And what I I do is show how a simple framework for say, presenting your rationale and argument needs to change depending on if you're working with somebody who is aggressive or somebody who doesn't like to make decisions can and need to change. And so the case would be like week one, your colleague really trusts whatever you say. And so that is a situation where you would go, only give them one answer, right? If they're mm-hmm. comfortable with who you who you are, don't give them 12 answers. Just give them the one that they need to go with, right? Because they trust you. But week two will say, no, your colleague doesn't trust you at all. <laughs> And in particular, if you're an in-house person, which this comes up a lot as a scenario, 
they've not given you a, a seven figure check to solve their problem. <laughs> they, they are suspicious and they perhaps think that, that you, you know, you're trying to take their job or, you know, there's other dynamics in play. And so then we say, well, in this situation, they don't trust you. So what you need to do is show a variety of resolutions and each one of those resolutions carries risk because even doing nothing carries risk. And so it's just this sort of framing that says, here are situations when your audience does not want to be inspired by the brand story or the, the customer story that you're trying to tell. In fact, what they want to know is your rationale and your argument and why you're pushing a one particular resolution over another. And so that's how we sort of use role playing is just kind of making slight little adjustments in what the the assignments are. And it's particularly in that communication style where we teach it in week one, but then it is part of the assignment in weeks two and three. Even though it's not the topic, we then say, frame your assignment, how you deliver it using the communication style that you learned. Part of, I think, what's powerful about that, and I know from our role-playing in the consulting course, is having an understanding of the other person's headspace, uh, yeah. building empathy sort of for persona, but also in that moment, being able to understand their motivations, what they're seeing, how they're acting, uh, how they're feeling, and essentially like using all of that to your advantage. Yeah. This is really behavioral design, right? Right, And what we know about behavioral design is, is we can't design directly for the outcome we want. We have to design for the behaviors that lead to the outcome. And so what's really important for me to share is that we have to absolutely respect the intrinsic rights of our colleagues, right? This is not about manipulation. This is not about trying to trick somebody. It's about how do you both respect somebody's human rights as an individual, as a colleague, as a, as a peer, as a mentor, whomever, and also sort of show them that there's an alternate way forward? And so in behavior design, we know that motivation is one of the hardest things to change, but we can prompt people in a different way or make something slightly easier for them to use. Case in point, journey maps. <laughs> right? Journey maps. I've seen so many colleagues or or customers kind of go like, I love all the stuff that's in a journey map. And then they put it in a drawer <laughs> because they don't have the ability to action the journey map. They don't know what to do with it. And so in that case, the problem to solve is not making a better journey map. The problem to solve is how do you avoid them being put in a drawer? A very different problem to solve. So those are the things that we kind of go through. We have office hours every week. We do live synchronous office hours every week. And this is this is a great time where we can kind of get more into that situational role play. And this is where when you have 30 different people in the call, some people have probably had some experience in one way or another of these situations, and they can then share their perspectives and how it went. That's really the the kind of power around this this type of instructional design. Yeah, that's really awesome to be able to to get those perspectives to learn from others. 
Yeah, it's pretty amazing. You know, you mentioned that that sort of statement of like, I wish I had this earlier. <laughs> if there's one statement that comes back in my feedback, and I'm, I'm really, gosh, I'm so humbled by it, is that when people, you know, the majority of them are saying, gosh, I wish I knew this 10 years before. <laughs> And and my response is like me too, and it's okay. <laughs> you know, this is we're still the new kids on the block. I actually have a a slide with NKOTB. You know, like it's okay. We're we're still relatively new in this space, and my job is to help relieve some anxiety, provide or or really accelerate your confidence working in these these new spaces, and then. You know, when it comes to the consulting side, really challenge executives to sort of say, like, hey, it's great. You want a design leader. Do you want them to paint in the lines that you've already drawn? Or are you prepared for them to paint outside the lines? Because if it's the second answer, it's going to be a whole lot more. They're going to be challenging your financial model and perhaps your process and your organizational models. Are you okay with that? Because that's where they're going to go. <laughs> When I had said that, I had imagined that a lot of the knowledge that you shared in the book through your course has come at cost, uh, same as mine, of, mm. of both successes and failures. <laughs> yeah, mostly failures. <laughs> in my case. The failures are definitely, the for me, the projects that I took away the most from. Right. Failures are like high school. I'm glad that happened. <laughs> and I don't want to go through that again, right? <laughs> That's a perfect way right? to sum it up. <laughs> right. I think for me to, you know, speaking of myself, I took failure as such a personal thing. And this this like gets into more of like taking care of my own mental health. I, I really thought there was something wrong with me when I struggled to to sort of make some of those connections or communicate in the right way. And it took up me a long time and a lot of failures to sort of say, well, which parts are me and then which parts aren't. And I don't need to hold on to the things that aren't me uh, because that's something that I, I shouldn't hold the, the anxiety or, or sort of concern about. That's taken a long time to address. And mm -hmm. that's more through individual work than working with a, a boss. Yeah. I mean, for me, I think one of the things that I was incredibly thankful for was critiques in art school because they, they certainly helped me disassociate my actions from myself, which allowed me when I did have failures early on to be able to like go up to someone and be like, I really screwed that up. What should I have done better? Mm. And I think what you were sort of hinting at is that disassociation is really important. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I think mentally to like both not hurt yourself, but also to recover and learn. Yeah. I mean, it's the thing that many of us as children kind of learn to both set up as a protective barrier, but also <laughs> maybe as we grow into adults, like, it becomes uh, a preventative barrier, right? Like <laughs> it yeah. sort of works in the opposite way. Um, my wife is a psychotherapist. So, you know, we kind of talk about these things a lot. And, you know, I think I didn't go to art school. I studied history. I started school as a material science engineer and, and then studied history. So I learned how to do research and I, and I learned how to code. 
but I was doodling constantly and drawing because my parents were in banking and insurance. And so like going to art school was not sort of like a, a really pushed, <laughs> you know, like go stretch yourself in art school. <laughs> that wasn't really a suggestion. So I didn't learn critique in that sense. And I think critique for those who didn't really learn it is so difficult. And and let's face it, the majority of our colleagues, even designers, really struggle with critique. And so there are other ways that I think that we can remix, like when talking to business folks who kind of make all decisions through metrics, what if we had metrics that sort of acted as the critique? Instead of telling them that they're wrong, we can sort of show metrics and and use that mechanism as the critique. And so this is like one of the important reasons of why I say like making these things visible is not necessarily a, a reflection on us, but it's more of an inroad to say, hmm, that's interesting. Uh, I have not seen a correlation between this metric and that outcome. Or talking about met metrics is like conditional statements. Hmm. It seems that we improved the accessibility here, which in turn reduced the number of errors that users incurred. Oh, interesting there. And so there's all these lovely ways that even if critique isn't formal, I think we try to go then instruct our colleagues on how to critique and maybe there's a different mechanism of say, like, what does critique look like for a business analyst? Mm -hmm. Maybe, maybe the language is more like metrics as mm -hmm. a critique. It also establishes what you're critiquing. Right. <laughs> Not the person. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Having that understanding is very important. And also like making sure that you're not just opening up everything you know, you say not the person, but also not maybe the brand or whatever it else. Like if it is a metric that we're trying to critique or hit or like that becomes a focus rather than. Right. And and I think that's such a, a key thing there, right, is, is that critique is often taken personally. It's taken as personal criticism. This has been covered a lot, right? <laughs> and <laughs> so- we then try to recover and say things like, I'm not criticizing you, but, right? <laughs> and like double down. Right? <laughs> and it's really hard. It, critique is really hard to give and receive. And I think the receiving is so hard for those if it's not practiced. So that's another thing that we do in our cohorts. We do a flipped classroom model. But one of the most important things is peer feedback and critique. So rather than me just giving an assessment and saying, you know, you got an A uh, or you got an 87, what we do is use critique and feedback so that knowing that the majority of people who come in don't have that as a regular process in mm -hmm. their own, you know, design practice, we just give them very basic structures like what worked well where there's opportunity, keep, stop doing these types of things so that they get into the rhythm of also practicing and receiving critique. And by far, that's been the, the most well-received 
part of our learning awesome. uh, of our courses have been going, oh my gosh, uh, you know, I got to see 18 different ways to solve the problem. And then reviewing everybody's feedback is so invaluable. It mm-hmm. makes me feel like I am part of this community. It makes me feel uh, like I'm able to be vulnerable in front of all these strangers. And I know that I can rely on them after I graduate, that now I'm part of this community moving forward. If I have a question that they're going to help me sort of frame rather than just solve for me, because (laughs) that's not necessarily what we want. Yeah. We are coming up on time. We have a sort of a ritual at the end, I guess you could call it. We call it the good, the bad, and the ugly (laughs) after the famous Western And we've been making each one of our guests do a good, bad, and the ugly. I'm happy to play the game, and I will (laughs) give my best shot. Cool. The good. The bad. And the ugly. (laughs) I think what I would like to hear is the good, the bad, and the ugly on designers gaining an understanding of business technique. So let's start with the ugly. (laughs) It is messy. It is difficult. It is hard. I think one of the false narratives that we've been giving is that it will be quick. Ah, we just run a couple workshops and it's all done. Uh, We just kind of do these and it's all done. But what we're really talking about, why it's ugly and messy, is because what we're really doing is changing ourselves perhaps confronting our own identity and our own values and what we see as our value to reframing that. So ugly, right? Not necessarily straightforward. (laughs) The good in that is that when we sort of go through that process and come out the other side, much like high school, we've evolved in a way where when it comes to differentiating ourselves to other designers when it comes to differentiating how we bring value to a company. It's a whole different framing, right? There's great things about Dribbble and Behance, but it sort of goes beyond that just sort of aesthetic take in one aspect of what design is. I think the bad in all this is that we're the ones that kind of have to continue to push and pivot. I would love it if Some of our colleagues still, you know, in other aspects of the business were to say, gosh, how do I reframe what I do? And and they are, but I, we were talking about dissociating and putting our walls up. The bad Mm. in all this is those walls can quickly go up in any given day. If we go in and something happens at work and we're in a heated discussion or like it can quickly just get turned around. Or you make your first attempt at trying to, to communicate in a businessy way and it might not go well. Uh, so that's that's kind of the bad side. Or we might learn things about the organizations we work for that we don't like. <laughs> and oh my gosh, now I have to have an existential question of like, do I keep my job or do I go out and start a uh, weird consulting and learning and development company, you know, nine <laughs> months before a pandemic? So like, beware, Alice, once you go into Wonderland, you can't come out. <laughs> That sounds like a very good story for another day. Right, totally. (laughs) Cool. Well, thank you so much for hopping on our podcast. If people want to get in touch with you, hear what's new with Second Wave Dive, what are the best ways to to kind of reach out? 
Uh, two ways. So secondwavedive.com and then on Twitter and Instagram, it's the same handle, Second Wave Dive. Or you could see my personal stuff. That's where I do more of my writing, ryanrumsey.com. And then the same with the handles, Ryan Rumsey at Twitter and at Instagram. Makes things easy. Cool. We'll have all of those in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, Kyle. One of these days, you know, we're both in Austin. Uh, we, <laughs> when all this is over, I'd love to catch up in, yeah, in real life. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. You can get our show notes at tentative.fm. You can email us, hosts at tentative.fm. You can tweet us at tentative.fm. And please rate us on iTunes. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. ThoughtBot is your expert design and development partner. Let's make your product and team a success.